0: It's an interesting word, isn't it? Gospel. Gospel. I'm guessing when people today hear that word, um, some of them might think of gospel music. That could be kind of what comes to their mind first. Others may hear that word and think of an expression like, well, I, I took what she said as gospel. That is something that is absolutely true. I think most would recognize that word is kind of a churchy word, isn't it? Gospel. They know it has this religious connection to it. But, but where did that word come from and why does it matter? Well, the word itself comes from the Old English. Interesting that we have an Old English word that's kind of preserved that really hasn't changed over a thousand years or whatever. This Old English word... They used to pronounce it godspell, and godspell simply meant in Old English, good news, a good message, a good message. And when you study the original language in which the New Testament was written, you realize that godspell is simply a direct translation from the Greek word euangelion, and euangelion just means good message or good news. Exactly the same thing. But when you read through the New Testament, you realize that this word is usually used in a very specific way. We would call it a technical usage. It has some kind of a technical meaning to it. That is, when the writer is writing, he's not simply talking about just any good news. He's talking about the good news. In English, sometimes we might capitalize the first two letters, right? Good news to tell you that this is a very specific kind of good news. Well, that's what we have here. That technical usage probably explains why we still use the old English word gospel. But again, why does that word matter? Why does the word gospel in English matter? Well, the word matters because it connects us. One of the reasons is it connects us to a rich heritage of resources in the English-speaking church for centuries, right? Sermons, articles, books, songs, you name it, that are connected, are threaded through with the gospel. But even better than that, and the reason for that, is because that word points us back to the scriptures. And as we read our Bible translations here in English, we realize there is an importance to that gospel that we read about in God's word. We see just how important this good news really was in the early church, those first Christians 2,000 years ago, because we have their writings. It's, It's obvious to us that this gospel was central to their life together, to their lives individually. I invite you to join me this morning by looking together, let's look together at a passage that stresses this same idea. It stresses this gospel central, gospel focused priority and that is Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Take a look at Romans 1, 16 and 17. So the Bible has, the New Testament has these really interesting books like Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians. Why are they called by those names? Because those are the addresses, right? That's where the letter, those are letters that were sent to communities of Christ followers, of Christians that lived in those cities. So Corinth and Rome and Ephesus, they got letters like Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians. So Romans is a book written to People who lived in Rome who confessed Jesus as Lord, who were followers of Christ. That's what we have here, chapter 1. Paul writes this to these disciples, these followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in that gospel, in that good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, this is in the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith, says the prophet Habakkuk. So, let's stop there. Why is Paul stating here that he's not embarrassed by the gospel? Why is Paul saying that he's not ashamed or embarrassed by the gospel? Well, look at verse 15. Just go back up to the verse before. In verse 15, he's told them that he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, when he says to you, I think he's speaking to them as Romans. He's not necessarily talking to the church in terms of them as a church, but them as Romans. This word, uh, to gospelify, because it's only a, one verb in Greek, right, uh, to evangelize, we might use in English, we'd say evangelize, euangelion, evangelize, it's really never used in the context of the church, it's always about the proclamation of the gospel out there. So he's saying, I want to come to Rome, among you as Romans, and I want to preach the gospel there. I want to declare the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even if they, these Christians, had concerns about proclaiming the gospel in their city, maybe they were hesitant, maybe they had some, they had some, they were timid, some trepidation about preaching the gospel there. Paul says he wants to make it clear, I am not ashamed of this message. In fact, I'm eager. I'm eager to come to you and proclaim this message. But it raises a really important point for us, doesn't it? If this gospel is good news, what exactly is the content of that good news? I keep saying it's good news, but what is what is the news? Why is it so good? Well, it's good news about, we're going to see, just a second here. We're going to tackle that question by looking at the opening chapters of this letter from Paul to the Romans, because he does something wonderful here. Paul actually unpacks his gospel for us. Right? When you double click on something on the computer, what does it do? Kind of opens something up, right? Launches something. You get more content. We're gonna, Paul's really just double clicking on, on the gospel here. And we're getting in these first four chapters, especially of Romans, we're getting all this content. Why? Like what the news is and why it's so good. He's unpacking it. Why would he do that for the Romans? Don't they know all this? Well, well, listen. Paul had never been to the church in Rome. He'd never been with them. And in chapter 15, he says, guess what? I want to take this gospel all the way to the very edge of the empire. As far as you can go west, which was where in the Roman Empire? Spain, right? Still, it's the west as far as you can go west in Europe today. He wanted to go to Spain, he tells them in chapter 15. And he wanted to come to them so that they would support him from Rome to go to Spain. But they needed to know what his gospel was they they needed to know because it seems like there were some questions about what he was preaching especially that he was preaching to the non-jewish people the gentiles the nations so paul is very careful in this book to really unpack in detail what this message was and that's why we have such a rich letter here there's so much for us here but it gives us an awesome opportunity Today for you and I to actually dig in and say, why is, what is this good news and why is it so good? So allow me to focus on five reasons this morning that the gospel is really, really good news. In fact, it is the best news you will ever hear, I promise you. Of course, neither this book nor the New Testament limits the value of the gospel (laughs) to five reasons, but I thought that would be a doable number, a reasonable number for us to tackle this morning as we look at this letter. And it's really helpful for us, brothers and sisters, friends. It's really helpful because when you hear that word gospel, you've got some information, some content about how you think about that. Well, we need to make sure how you think about it and how I think about it matches what God says about it. Amen? So that's what we want to do this morning is make sure we understand what God has revealed about the gospel. Take a look at this. The gospel is such good news because number one, it is God's power to rescue everyone, including you. It is God's power to rescue everyone, including you. Notice that what Paul is talking about here. Uh, in these opening chapters, in this opening chapter, in the opening four chapters of this letter that you read this past week, notice that he's not talking here about a new set of rules. A new set of rules that will help us become good enough or holy enough to know God and spend eternity with God. That's not what he's describing here. He's not giving you the new ladder or the new staircase that you can, you know, through your hard work, get up to God... No, he's also not talking about some mystical process or some series of rituals, oh, ee, oh, you know, some weird rituals that you have to do if you do them rightly, done correctly, that you might, maybe, possibly, that might connect us with the divine if done correctly. That's not what he's describing here. It's not mystical mumbo jumbo no paul is talking about real power here do you see that what kind of power is it it is power verse 16 from god himself power that will do what power that will absolutely deliver us rescue us save us from what from the power and penalty of our sin save us from that but save us for what save us for a life with god now and forever that's power isn't it that is power and when and when we where can we find this kind of power look what paul says there in verse 16 we find it in the gospel for the gospel is the power of god for salvation the gospel is the power of god for salvation how important is the gospel brothers and sisters? It is God's power to rescue everyone, including you. Everyone. That doesn't mean everyone will be rescued, but it is available to everyone. What does he say here? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek simply means Gentile there. The Jew and the non-Jew. Everyone. Whatever the Jewish believers here in the city of Rome told themselves about their non-Jewish neighbors, and there were Gentile, I'm sure, Gentile Christians within the church at Rome, but there seems to be a little bit still of some distinction when you get into those first chapters of Romans, right? The Jews, it almost seems like, are thinking they're a little bit better than the Gentiles. They're kind of like, okay, yeah, we, we'll welcome you in, but you've got B-ticket B, B seating or Uh, Balcony seating or you're kind of there in the nosebleeds of the church No, 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 no Whatever they were telling themselves about their non-Jewish neighbors Paul wanted them to understand right from the outset of this letter That no matter where you're from No matter how you talk No matter the color of your skin No matter how you dress No matter your past Or your vocation Or your socioeconomic standing This good news is for you It's for you it's for all of us. No one is disqualified. So why would anyone be ashamed or embarrassed of something this important? Of something this incredible? But, but even earlier in chapter 1, take a look at this. Paul told us something incredibly important about this gospel, even before we get to verses 16 and 17. Why is the gospel such good news? Because number 2, take a look, It announces the promised king and his eternal reign. Verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 1. Look what it says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He opens the letter this way, his greeting. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm the one writing to you. Called to be an apostle. It's just a word that means that somebody was sent out as a duly authorized representative of the one sending them. He was was representing Jesus. He was authorized to do that. He was an apostle. He was set apart for what? For the gospel of God, which he promised, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, that's like a ton of information. Like the opening, I would never open a letter that way, like to make you drink from the fire hose, like the first four verses, right, of the letter. Like, oh, man, like, whoa, wow, what are you laying on me here? This is a lot. But it's so good. It's so important we hear this and know this. Notice what Paul is telling us here is about the gospel. Did you see that? He says it's the gospel was what was promised beforehand by the Old Testament prophets. And if we were to simplify the gospel, if anyone asks you to reduce the gospel down to its most constituent element, that's the most basic element, if we were to simplify the gospel to its most basic component, we'd have to say every time the gospel is good news about Jesus. Jesus can never be extricated from the gospel. The gospel is always about Jesus. He is central to the gospel. And we see that right here. Uh, Jesus, there's no better starting point. There's no better ending point when talking about the gospel. There's really no center to the gospel apart from Jesus. But notice the first things that Paul tells us here about Jesus. He says this gospel about Jesus was, number one, promised by the Old Testament prophets. It's not a fad. It's nothing new. Paul didn't invent it. It's been the legacy of the people of God for centuries millennia they've been waiting for him this is this good news number two it was concerning a descendant from king david's royal line and number three that descendant of david in keeping with the promise of god to david the covenant god made with david that descendant of david actually rose from the dead in order to secure david's throne for all eternity Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I've begotten you. What is that a reference to? The resurrection of Jesus. The word makes that clear. Acts 2, Acts 13, right? So what is Paul saying? He's saying, this Jesus was on one hand the son of David. That's where he came from, his lineage. But on the other hand, he was the son of God, and he was declared to be the son of God that is the the son who was promised according to covenant to come from David's line where God would say you are my son you are my son and it's the resurrection of the dead that made that perfectly clear that established his throne forever why because he would live forever and ever and ever he shall reign forever and ever right yeah that's what that's the this is where this is coming from right here All of this, is all of this really part of the gospel message? I'm I'm like getting into some really interesting stuff about the Old Testament and covenant and David. Is this part of the gospel message? Absolutely, absolutely. Remember what the first chapter of Mark's gospel tells us about Jesus' ministry. And Mark is probably the oldest of the four gospels. So you're talking about the opening chapter of the oldest, maybe the oldest book of the entire New Testament says this, take a look. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here's the the good news, here's the content of that gospel, saying the time is fulfilled. Oh, Old Testament prophets, fulfilled. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Why does someone need to repent or turn from a message about the coming kingdom? Well, because they're opposed to the kingdom, right? They're kingdom opposers is what they are. They're rebels. So when you announce a coming kingdom, you repent because you're, you're, you're fighting against that kingdom. You've set up a rival kingdom, and you need to change your ways. You need to give that up and say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to try to play king or do my own kingdom thing anymore. The kingdom of God is on its way. That means the king is coming. Jesus, of course, said the king is with you right now. You see, the earliest mention we have in the gospel of the New Testament has to do with the king and his kingdom, doesn't it? How could it not be part of the gospel? The gospel always has been. And always will be a message about a king and his kingdom. If you don't understand that about the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. That's what Paul is reminding us about in the opening verses of Romans. Why is this such good news? Why is this such good news for us when we hear about this king and this kingdom? Pastor Bryce, this is really weird. Like you're talking about like weird Old Testament history of King David. He lived a thousand years ago. What does this have to do with me today? Well, we live in a day and age where it is so, so clear to us it should be that the kingdoms of this world, the governments of this world, including our own, and all the leaders, all the politicians, all those in power, all of it, all of them are tainted by sin. And they can never truly provide us with what each of us is longing for. A strong righteous and loving leader who can establish an enduring peace and promote real flourishing in every life in every way that's the utopia that people usually want from governments from leaders be this way do this for me and every leader will fail some are better than others yes but we should know by now that we can't put our eggs in that basket. We can't put our trust there. Put no trust in princes, says the Old Testament, right? It calls us to this vision that something better, God has something better for us. Brothers and sisters, that vision, friends, no one can do that apart from King Jesus. He will do that. That's why this gospel is such good news for us. But to truly appreciate that reality... ...that I'm describing there... ...Paul wants us to understand another reality... ...that we have to grapple with... ...starting in verse 118... ...we're not going to read through this... ...but starting in chapter 1 verse 18... ...that verse that comes right after our main passage... ...16 and 17... ...starting in 118... ...for the next 63 verses... ...Paul... ...wants us to understand... ...that the gospel is such good news... ...because number 3... It reveals the clearest diagnosis of our deepest disorder. It reveals the clearest diagnosis of our deepest disorder. Ask anybody today what's wrong with the world. Stop them on the street, right? Send them an email and ask them, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with, what's wrong in my life? What's wrong with, what's going wrong in your life today? Right? What are the things that you say? If I could just change this, if this is just would be, if this would just be different, everything would be better. If I just got this, this would be better. If this in the world was different, why can't we all just love one another? You know, uh, what do you want, Miss America? I want world peace. That's what I'm. Uh, standing for world peace you know you get all that same stuff everybody wants that they, they ha- identify here's the problem well if we just had better education then it'd be this well if we just had more economic freedom we just said this if our religious rights weren't being threatened all the time none of those are bad issues but we know that that's not the clear diagnosis of our deepest disorder none of those things look at two sixteen with me chapter 2 verse 16 of Romans. Paul is writing to them there. We won't get into the weeds of the of the context necessarily, but he's writing to them there about that day in the future when according to what my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice first of all that a gospel that does not include judgment is a gospel different from the one Paul preached. Did you notice that? A gospel that does not include judgment is not the gospel Paul was preaching. His gospel included this coming judgment. He made that abundantly clear. Even when he was in Athens talking to those philosophers and those Greek Greek bigwigs, right? That's where he finally arrived before he was cut off. He talked about how God had appointed a man to judge the world. That's where he was getting in order to talk about Jesus. And he's given proof of that by doing what? Raising that man from the dead. That's how you know who the judge is. That man has conquered even death. He will be the one. So what Paul is stressing here is the fact that nothing will be hidden. What's going to be judged, 2.16? The secrets of men. That is, nothing will be hidden when it comes to the light of God's judgment. Not our words, not our attitudes, not our motives, not our actions, not our inaction. What we should have done and we failed to do. None of that will be hidden. All of it will be known. All of it will be laid bare in the end before the God who made you. And it will be judged. Dude, that's serious, isn't it? That's sobering. That's sobering when you hear that. It should stop us in our tracks. What will be the result of that judgment? Uh, Some people will fare pretty well. The balance scales will kind of go, oh, you know, there's some good people and some bad people. No, for Paul reading these opening chapters, he clearly tells us that the result of that judgment to come will be condemnation. That will be the result. Condemnation. Cross the board. Cross the board. Who will it be condemnation for? Well, across the board. For all of us, because chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Both Jew and Gentile will be condemned, says Paul. Chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They will not reach the presence, God's glorious presence in the end. They won't be able to stand before him, will they? But the gospel, this gospel also explains that we are not simply sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Because something right in the center of us is desperately distorted. Something right in the middle of you is wrong. Paul described that distortion in chapter 1, verses 21 and 25. You can look there if you want, flip back. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 25, Paul says, For although they knew God, that's everyone, through creation, through the testimony of their conscience, there are clues to God everywhere in this world. The question is, are we acknowledging them or are we trying to to look away and distract ourselves from them? Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What did they do? What did that look like? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. People long ago would actually shape false idols, right? De- false deities, statues, and they would worship those totems and those idols and whatever. Today, we're so, so much more sophisticated, right? We don't do that anymore. But we still give all of our attention and our time and our heart and our priorities. We give them the things like sex and money, power, position, pleasure, prestige, right? We give ourselves over to these things and we serve them as our gods, in effect. You see, we're still idolaters. We haven't changed in that respect. That's what Paul is saying. Why is all of this so important from chapter 1? Because it reveals how our deepest disorder is, in fact, a worship disorder. That's what's wrong with us. A worship disorder. We are not simply people who make mistakes. That's trying to soft sell, right? (laughs) What's wrong with us? Well, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Stop being so harsh. Stop being so hard, Pastor Bryce. No, it's worse than that. We're not just people who make mistakes. All of us are idol makers. Thus, all of us are God replacers. Can you imagine that? The God of of all creation, all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present, that we're trying to replace him with things that he's made. That we're trying to step up and say, you're you're not good enough. We want something else to, to be our God. Which is in effect setting ourselves up as God, right? To make that judgment. To stand in that place. We are God replacers. It's ugly, isn't it? It's horrible. It's grotesque. It's it's, un, it's it's just unthinkable that somebody would do something like this. This is critical to understand, friends. Because only when we understand the seriousness of our sickness are we ready to embrace the seriousness of god's call to repentance and faith if you don't think that you're that sick then you're kind of like ah give me a prescription doc i'll go fill it at walgreens and i'll be out of here but when they say hey you're going to die in a week if you don't get this treatment and it means we go in surgery we cut you open and it means we're doing blasting you with radiation or we're doing something you're like holy cow this is serious this is really serious this is what this is what Paul is telling them. This is what God is telling us this morning. How serious this is. This is why a clear diagnosis of our deepest disorder is so important. But again, the right diagnosis sets us up for the right treatment, doesn't it? We've got to know and understand that diagnosis to understand the treatment. Why is the gospel such good news? Because number four, it presents Jesus as an incomparable redeemer. Look at chapter three, verses 21 through 26. So after establishing for 63 verses how all of us, Jew and Gentile, are guilty and helpless as sinners, as God replacers, Paul proclaims how God himself has provided a way in which even we as sinners, sinners like us, can actually obtain a right standing before him. How is that even possible? One word, what was the basic component of the gospel, every gospel, right? The simplicity of the gospel. One word, Jesus. Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer. Again, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Paul tells us in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 3, God replacers like us can actually be justified, that is, acquitted, declared innocent. Charges dropped by his grace as a gift. Whoa. How? How is this even possible? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, big word here, big word alert, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the resurrection of Jesus that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, he rose from the dead, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection. That resurrection implied what? That Jesus was dead, right? That he was dead. He was dead. You don't rise from the dead if you're not dead. He was dead. Why was he dead? Well, as most of you know, he was crucified by the Romans. But his death was no unforeseen and tragic turn of events that somehow squashed his hopes and dreams. No, 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 no. He offered himself and was at the same time offered up by God to be the sacrifice that we needed. His blood, that is his death, actually propitiated God. What does that word even mean, propitiated? A propitiation was simply a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of a deity. It was a a wrath-satisfying sacrifice provided To a deity and that's a word that was used all around the, the, the Greek and Roman world so he became the judgment satisfying sacrifice that we needed enduring the wrath that God replacers like us rightly deserve no other blood could do that don't say there are many ways to God because you have to deal with all of these things that we've talked about and there's no other blood on this planet that could do this There's no other death that could count in this way. Only Jesus was God in human flesh and could perfectly stand for us not only as a fellow human being but as God in human flesh. Therefore, His blood, His death was incalculably valuable. Incredibly valuable. It did what only He could do. There's no other way to get to God unless our sin is dealt with. Unless this debt is satisfied. And Christ did that. Now, it's that stunning act of love and grace that brings us to a final point. Are you ready? This has been a lot of stuff I know. But hopefully you go back and really dig into it. Number five, are you ready? Why is the gospel such good news? Because it calls us to faith in Christ, not in our own efforts. And if I could say there's one thing that Paul is trying to drive home in the first four chapters of Romans, it is that point right there. It is that point that he is making so clearly, right? Uh, how can someone like me or you, so stained by the unrighteousness of man, how could we obtain the righteousness of God? How is that even possible? I am so defined by the unrighteousness of of mankind. How could I ever obtain the righteousness of God that I might stand before him, that you might stand before him, that I might know him, that you might know him forever and ever and ever? Well, Paul explains this. Listen to these monumental words. Chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God. That's what we want, isn't it? To be able to stand. Because we're not good people. Get rid of that idea. Drop that notion right now. You're not a good person. We're not good people. We're all worthy of judgment. We're all God replacers. We need the righteousness of God. That righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from what you can do. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. They talk about it. They promised it. The righteousness of God, here it is, through faith in jesus christ for all who believe wow there it is you see none of us as god replacers and kingdom opposers could ever obtain could ever walk in the righteousness of god through rule keeping we can't keep the rules we don't want to keep the rules we want to make our own rules we want to live by our own rules doesn't work right So what did God do? He sent Jesus to keep the rules for us and then bear the consequences of our rule-breaking. Ever heard the gospel like that? He sent Jesus to keep the rules for us and then bear the consequences of our rule-breaking. That's exactly what Jesus did. Therefore, we are simply called to trust in Christ in light of these truths about rule-keeping and rule-breaking. That is, to trust in Him as both Lord and Savior. The Lord who kept the rules perfectly and the Savior who bore the consequences of our rule-breaking. As both King and Redeemer, we trust in Christ. We trust in Him. You see, once you accept that trusting in your own abilities, your own goodness, your own cleverness, your own whatever is completely useless, you will recognize the beauty of simply trusting in Jesus Christ. Man, is that good news or what? Is that good news? When you understand that and you hear that, there's no news better than that. Because no stakes are higher. We're talking about eternity here. I'm talking about your very soul. It's this idea of faith that Paul is driving home like I mentioned remember chapter 1 verse 17 for in it the gospel the righteousness of god there it is is revealed from faith how do we get it from faith and what does it mean for our lives that after that for faith so god is saving you not to start with faith and then bring in your own efforts and start working hard yourself he's saying you walk you are you are you are one by god's grace through faith and then it sets you up for a life of faith. You continue to walk in faith. You see, the Old Testament told us the same thing. The righteous shall live by faith. Not only live like gain eternal life, but actually live it out. You walk by faith. And what does Paul do? He drives that point home, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, he gets to and he says, again, friends, this is not new. What I'm telling you, fellow Jews in Rome, this is not new. Listen, Abraham was the example of this very faith which God has always been calling his people to. He's always been calling them to this kind of faith. What kind of faith is it? Saving faith. Is it new with Jesus? No, it goes back, it goes back to Abraham even. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The righteousness of God. Wow, what a picture God has given us. Brothers and sisters, friends, I think one of the things that we've learned this morning is that while the gospel is not complicated, it is deep. Profoundly deep. But it's that depth that should drive us to the simplicity of faith. It's that depth which should drive us to the simplicity of faith, to a sincere trust in this incredibly good news. What have, we seen, what have we seen in the opening chapters of Romans here? We've seen that what God did through Christ in the past points us to a glorious future when we stand before Him one day. But it also radically shapes our present right now. Let God, brother, sister, friend, let God clarify for you this morning the gospel idea that you have in your mind. How did you define gospel before this? What's good news? What does good news sound like to you? Well, God has been clarifying this for us to make sure that we know the truth about this gospel this morning. And then be encouraged when you embrace that. Be encouraged and live in light of what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. He tells us this about the importance of this gospel for both knowing God and also growing in His grace. What does he say? Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, in Corinth, I would remind you of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received. But he doesn't stop there, does he? You walk the aisle, you raised your hand, you prayed the prayer, you received it, full stop. No, he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. This gospel you received, in which you stand right now, And by which you are being saved. Wow. The gospel for all of life. The gospel that gives us life for all of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is good news, brothers and sisters. Let's go to God and give Him thanks for this incredibly deep and rich good news.